Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. Democracy and human rights have been at the front of public policy for a long time. When you're based in Washington, of course, Washington is the protest capital of the world. On any given day, you walk to the White House and right there at the park, you see a number of people protesting over different issues. This range for nuclear weapon proliferation to abuses in uh, Tibet to different African countries uh, issues. We, of course, in the United States, have hosted a democracy summit last year. We also saw that last August in Johannesburg, Secretary of State Antony Blinken launched the Africa strategy, which was well received because among its pillars, of course, stand democracy and human rights. We had last December the second U.S.-Africa Leadership Summit, which was a success, which also among its pillars had democracy, human rights and civil society engagement. During that summit, we saw a number of people protest outside the venue, right outside the convention center, particularly Ethiopian community, the Ugandans and others. At issue, again, was the state of democracy and state of human rights. Joining me today to discuss the state of democracy and human rights in Africa are Kate Hickson, Africa Advocacy Director for Amnesty International USA. Tiseke Kasambala, Africa Director at Freedom House, based in Johannesburg. Marty Flax, Kosravi Chair in Principal Internationalism and Director of Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Ladies, welcome to Into Africa. Yeah, thanks, Mavamba. So the world is preparing for another democracy summit. This will take place in different countries. I think last time it all took place in the United States, but this time I think democracy is about decentralization. We'll have some of the proceeding take place in Costa Rica, for Latin America, in South Korea, in Seoul, in the Netherlands, and in Zambia, in, in Lusaka, in Zambia, from March 29th to March 30th. As you look at uh, democracy and human rights, where do things stand today? I will start on democracy, so I'll turn to you, Marty. Thanks, Mavamba, and thanks for having us for this conversation. I think it's really timely as we gear up for that second Summit for Democracy. The situation is a real mixed bag. I, th- I think the important part of holding the summit is that it's keeping this issue on the agenda at the head of state level, and it's continuing a conversation that started at the head of state level, what will be 15 months earlier. The Biden administration came in and saw a situation where, in their view, democracy was under threat and, in some cases, in decline around the world, and they wanted to to convene a conversation about the root causes of that. And I think they're correct to diagnose the problem as both external challenge and an internal challenge, 
right? There are external threats to democracy. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine that happened in between these two summits puts a very fine point on that issue, along with other more subtle means like misinformation and disinformation online. But there are also internal threats that a lot of countries are facing from political polarization and politicians seeking to divide people rather than serving their people. And just the state of inequality and issues that many individuals are feeling that they don't have a sense that democracy is delivering for them concretely in their daily lives. And so I think the administration was correct to diagnose the problem and start a conversation. I think the question and the challenge with the summit process is what concretely is it going to deliver in terms of change, whether that's in foreign policy or whether that's in domestic policy for the participants. The engagement at the heads of state level is important. They are the captains of the countries and kind of steer that lane of democracy. What about the engagement with the other segments of that space, i.e. civil society, human rights group, political parties? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the critiques of the summit in its initial phases, which is that partially by virtue of the fact that it was virtual rather than in person, and partially because of the framing, it was largely government focused. It's very difficult to get civil society in the room to have these conversations. And I think there's been a process over the last year that improves upon that a little bit, but you still get the sense that those conversations are happening in parallel. And I think I hope that in the process of doing these regional summits, which will be partially in person and partially online, that there will be a strong civil society component to each of them so that the conversation is not just among governments. But I would also add one important fact, which is, you know, there's 101 or so countries that participated in the first summit at the head of state level. And in some cases with civil society, but there's a whole lot of civil society from countries that are not democracies that were not invited to the summit. And it's important that those countries be represented in conversations about democracy, too. They're not going to be represented by their authoritarian governments. They need to be represented by the civil society organizations, the politicians, the organizations that are striving for democracy. So we at CSIS hosted a side event spotlighting the work of some of those pro-democracy activists from countries that weren't invited. And I hope that that's the case this time around as well, that they actually play an important role in the conversation of not just reinforcing existing democracy, but building democracy in places that it doesn't yet exist. So did they account for that challenge for the Lusaka summit for civil society or that challenge is still remaining from last year? So my understanding is that when the United States requested these four co-hosts to do these regional summits is that they asked them to commit to having a civil society component of those summits as well. So there should be in every one of those regional summits some role for civil society. I think the challenge is both the agenda, how meaningful is that role, but also just the frankly, the logistics. As you know, it's very hard for civil society to travel. It's hard to get funding. It's hard to get visas to some countries, particularly to come to the United States and to European countries. And so you really want robust participation. You've got to get them in the room. And then the last piece I would say is, you know, this can't be a one-off process. It's nice to have a conference that involves civil society, but how do you actually engage them in an ongoing dialogue to influence decisions going forward? And we don't really have a good sense yet of what the continuation of that process is going to look like after March. Tiseke, what does it look like from where you stand? As Marty has said, I think it's quite a mixed bag for Africa, at least speaking from the African perspective. On the one hand, I would say that we 
continue to face a lot of challenges on the continent. And I think one of the things that we did at Freedom House last year around US and African Union Leaders Summit was to kind of point out the fact that a lot of these leaders who had been invited to the summit were actually responsible for perpetrating, you know, all sorts of violations and actually responsible for the democratic regression we've seen in the continent on the continent over the past three to five years or so. And this includes, you know, the recent spate of coups in the country, changes to presidential term limits, attacks on human rights defenders. In January alone of this year, we saw three human rights defenders being killed in, in quite suspect circumstances. Um, a journalist in Rwanda, an activist in Eswatini or Swaziland, and another activist in Cameroon. The state of civil society, I think it's very important that we've mentioned civil society representation at these meetings, at these summits. You know, we've seen a legislative onslaught on civil society organizations across the continent. And so the representation of civil society in these spaces is crucial. So I must say that I think it's really great that this has been hosted in Zambia because there is an opportunity to open up the space for engagement. And I'm hoping the Zambian government has taken on board the need to represent civil society in this space, given the challenges that civil society is facing across the continent. And, you know, a final challenge is the ongoing insecurity and the conflicts we've seen, whether it's in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo or in the Sahel region. So that's the negative side of things. But it's not all lost. Like Marty said, it is a mixed bag. I think there's a lot of positive developments. You spoke of protests in November at the US-Africa Leaders Summit. I think what we're seeing is young people increasingly seeking to hold their governments accountable and pushing back, whether it's through protests or through the use of technology. And also the recognition is that we can hold governments accountable. When one government fails, we can vote them out through elections. So let me end on the point that the theme for the Zambia summit, the Zambia leg of the summit, is around free, fair and transparent elections in Africa, which is a huge discussion in and of itself. Free, fair and transparent elections in Africa. Zambia is emerging as an oasis in a tribal region. The DRC hopefully will hold the elections this year. It's not clear if that will happen this year or not, in part because of the reasons that you mentioned, Eastern Congo. We have, of course, countries in the Sahel that are struggling with this. The transitional government in Mali, I think, got in trouble because they couldn't uh, commit to a specific date as the African Union had wanted them to. They thought that they faced different realities on the ground there. But Zambia, to go back to Lusaka, is unique in that way. What kind of conversations are you hearing? The region where you base, you just mentioned a few situations there. Eswatini, where I think a human rights defender was killed. This is not in your region. Cameroon, a journalist, I think that's a journalist you are referring to, Martinez Zogo, was assassinated and his body found in a quite advanced state of uh, decomposition already. I think there's some investigation going on in Cameroon. The Zambia is a I'll call it an oasis of democracy in that sense. But next to it, you find Zimbabwe, you find Eswatini, you said uh, early on. You also have South Africa, which is facing its own challenges. What do you see in terms of conversations that may or may not be taking place as we lead up to this summit? Well, I think certainly there's a recognition by at least uh, the government of Zambia and African governments that there's been a growing lack of trust in the ability of elections to deliver for citizens on the continent. There's been a lack of trust in electoral institutions and the effectiveness of these electoral institutions to manage elections in a transparent manner and in a manner that holds the integrity of the election results. 
But at the same time, there is still the sense that elections are a key cog in democratic consolidation on our continent. You know, when we look at the wave of multi-party elections that we saw in the 90s and the hope that those elections brought about the ability to deliver democratic dividends and then how this has regressed to elections being held as a almost a ticking box, checking box to show that um, the country is democratic. There's a huge gap between that sense of hope and what we're seeing now. But I think there's increasing recognition on the part, and this is coming from the pressure of civil society and citizens on their governments to say, we don't trust the way you are running elections and we demand elections that are free, fair and transparent. And where those elections are not free, fair and transparent, we have seen a pushback, not only from civil society, from citizens, which in some ways have contributed to the instability we're seeing in some parts of the continent, especially in the Sahel region, the inability of governments to hold free, fair and transparent elections has led to growing insecurity and stability. But where we've seen a trust in the election process and a pushback by citizens in places like Zambia, we have seen changes of government that have taken place in a manner that has led to growing confidence in the ability of elections you know, to lead to democratic consolidation. So those conversations are happening. The challenge, as, as has been said earlier, is how we move from having these discussions at a conference level to actually concrete outcomes and concrete support for electoral processes that actually deliver for their citizens. It's insightful what you're saying there. My question is, in a sub-region like the southern region where you are, how do governments hold themselves accountable how do other dynamics, regional dynamics, where either government or civil society groups work together? There's a disparity, right? You talked about the gap between hope and the reality in that space. But there's also a gap between the way people engage, right? The youth in Zambia were very instrumental in bringing the new president to power and the changing of the guard. We've seen youth mobilize through different venues. We saw hashtag this flag in Zimbabwe. Fees must fall. Are there conversations like that where regional leaders are trying to come together to push for a new chapter? Well, I think this, this particular summit, I guess, is one of the first that we're seeing, not just in Southern Africa, because it's actually a regional one, so across the continent, to actually discuss what free and fair elections could look like in Africa and in Southern Africa. We haven't seen these types of conversations before, but as you know, we have quite a robust framework for the holding of free and fair elections, whether it's the African Charter on democratic elections, the SADC regional guidelines, the government governing of democratic elections and the holding of democratic elections, we have a raft of laws that exist. But there hasn't been this type of discussion before. And so I do think this is a great opportunity for African leaders to come together with civil society partners to talk about what elections mean for Africa and what they mean in the broader sense of democracy and governance on the continent. Uh, this is such an important point that Tseke just made. The goal, I think, of the diversifying the hosting of the summit, of spreading it across five co-hosts, was not just to spotlight the situations in those specific countries. As you said, Zambia is a good example of a strong democracy in the region, but also to encourage regional leadership projecting outward. So I think one of the key questions coming out of the summit is, will this encourage or empower 
Zambia as a relatively small country in the region to actually not just focus on its own democracy, but project outward and support democratic institutions, civil society, free and fair elections, as Tseke said, around the Southern Africa region or across Africa or at the AU, you know, does this lead to an empowerment of democracies like Zambia to be more forward-leaning in their own regions? But also, I've always wondered, you know, when we have this crisis, quote-unquote, of democracy or human rights, the world tend to look up to the United States or other Western countries to intervene. Tiseke, are Africans ready, African leaders to intervene, at least to speak, to make a stand? We look up north, we look to Washington, we look to Paris. In your view, what's missing so that regional leaders start engaging and calling out, policing themselves, really? That's a great point. You're very right. And I think the challenge has been this lack of champions of democracy on our continent and lack of African leaders who are championing democracy in a very serious way. And I think this is kind of the beginning. We've seen countries like Zambia. They're often much smaller countries, stable democracies in places like Namibia, in Zambia, to some extent in parts of West Africa where we saw, we've seen some progress, although it's a mixed bag, but even a place like Ghana, there are countries that can take on that responsibility to say we need to call ourselves out. But let me also anchor this discussion in the broader discourse of democracy across the globe. You are very right in saying that I think this, this past two summits for democracy are a recognition of the general pathology that has seeped into democratization processes across the board, whether it's in the U.S. or South Africa. This is a global problem. It's a global phenomenon. And so how do we address this? What is the therapy that is required to fix democracies that are in regression and where can we find the spotlights and the countries that can lead the way. So I think it's really a great initiative to look at a country like Zambia to take the lead on the continent, a Costa Rica or a Netherlands, all of, all of whom are co-hosting this summit with the US, because this is not just about Africa. It goes beyond this. It's about a global direction of democracy. There's a lot of work to be done there. Kate Hickson, you are in Washington, D.C., you are involved in advocacy when it comes to human rights. How do you read the situation? Are you get, what kind of responses do you get in your engagement, particularly on the U.S. side? Thanks, Movemba. You know, the administration from day one has talked about centering their foreign policy and human rights, and it's really laudable that they're doing that. But at the same time, while they continue to message that way, you don't see them actually centering human rights in reality. Tseke mentioned that there were three different losses of human rights activists and journalists in the past couple of weeks. Thilani Maseko in Iswatini, Martina Zogo in Cameroon, and John Williams Natwale in, in Rwanda. And in fact, in Cameroon, another journalist was killed 11 days after Martina Zogo, and it took State Department days to comment on any of this. I think it was three days for an official statement from the State Department spokesperson on Thulani Maseko's death. And then Martina Zogo only received a tweet from the Africa Bureau feed. So activists who are under pressure around the continent looking for endorsement or protection from the United States see this silence. And I think that kind of sends a chilling message on where the U.S. may actually be. You know, you look back to the Africa Leaders Summit, a lot has been said on the guest list. I won't comment on who should or should not have been invited, but something that they really could have done was also profile human rights defenders who are taking real risks in some of these countries and giving them 
equal footing on participation. And they didn't do that. And I think something like that combined with what we've seen with with a real muted reaction to the deaths of over the past couple of weeks of activists on the continent sends a message that this isn't their top priority at the moment, despite saying it's the center of their foreign policy. Not a top priority. You talked about the State Department sending, a, sending out a tweet uh, after we discover Martinez Zogo's death. What did the tweet say? Why not a statement? Why not a clear position to send a strong message to the Cameroonian government? You know, that's a great question. I think the tweet offered condolences and called for an investigation. But comparatively, a tweet, if you're not following the account, you're not going to realize that something was even said. If you go to Africa Bureau's website, there is no statement on the website, either from Africa Bureau or higher up. And I, I think I'm sure if you ask counterparts in state, they'll say they're delivering tough messages directly bilaterally, but not making it public. And yes, sometimes there's an advantage to quiet diplomacy, but to the activists around the continent who are risking their lives daily for human rights, it doesn't send a great message of support to them. So what should be done? Ideally, as you look at this, Organizations like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Freedom House, and others that are engaged in this space continue pushing. What is missing? I think there needs to be a bigger platform for human rights defenders. Yes, the State Department and the administration at large should have bilateral relationships with all these governments, but they need to also be continuing to engage with and elevate human rights defenders, particularly if they want their own objectives and deliverables met. You know, there's a lot of ways to do this. Embassies can publicly host meetings with activists in countries. Obviously, that's not always the right thing to do. Sometimes it's more of a, a danger to the activists to be publicly associated with the United States. But a lot of times civil society leaders and activists do appreciate getting that meeting, having it be public, and it sends a message to the government, you know, that the United States has a relationship with this person. We're going to be aware if they start being threatened. I think they need to be inviting human rights defenders over to the United States as well, elevating their platform there. Ambassador Carson is tasked with following up on the outcomes of the Africa Leader Summit. A civil society actually sent a letter outlining priorities that they thought the administration should take going forward and the follow up to the summit with a big focus on human rights. We've not yet seen the administration pick up on that. And while the commercial deals and everything else will be very important to the administration, they need to be robustly engaging with civil society and hearing from them on what they think are priorities and the challenges they're facing and how the United States can help them deliver as well. During the summit, a lot of agencies and departments got involved. This was a big effort across the entire spectrum of U.S. government. The State Department has an entire division, Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, DRL, with its own Assistant Secretary of State. How do you assess that engagement on the human rights front during the summit that we just had in, in December? First of all, DRL does not have a confirmed Assistant Secretary of State. The nominee just pulled out. So I think that in itself is a message on human rights. I think for the summit. USAID and others did do a good job of consulting with civil society and listening to them and trying to keep them engaged. As you mentioned, it was a whole of government process. And so I think things that they put forward or tried to prioritize weren't necessarily what was ultimately decided on. 
their civil society day, this was already covered, was was a half day in a different venue. While civil society leaders were profiled and some human rights issues were covered, it was a very passive participation where people were in the audience just listening. There wasn't an opportunity for questions. There wasn't an opportunity for civil society activists who had come all this way to engage with each other or ask questions. You could look at who was representing the U.S. government in Civil Society Day compared to, say, what was happening with commerce or what was happening with the Peace and Security Forum to to get a sense of where the priority was there. And outside of that, human rights didn't really focus. You know, I think you yourself were at the Peace and Security Forum and there were no tough questions around human rights issues linked to that, nor was there an opportunity to hear from civil society activists on these issues. Outside of that, you didn't really get a sense in communiques or anything else that human rights was top of the agenda for this summit. The uh, post of the Assistant Secretary for Human Rights remains vacant, you just pointed out. I suppose this is due to all kinds of dynamics, including confirmation in Congress. Why is that the case? Why is the post still vacant if democracy and human rights is such an important pillar of U.S. engagement, particularly in Africa? I mean, I think you're right. It's not completely within the administration's control that that post remains vacant. But at the same time, if it was a priority for them, I think they would have found a way around it. Or now that the previous nominee has withdrawn, they would have already had another nomination. So I think the fact that this has not happened just indicates that while they continue to give lip service to human rights being a priority, um, when you look at actions, it's not actually the case. You talked about highlighting, profiling, raising the profile of human rights defenders. You talked about situations where maybe embassy should feature them more. Maybe Washington should invite them more. When Washington invites them more here, what kind of engagement would you like to see? People come here all the time. They go to meetings, sometimes they close door sessions. Even those of us in Washington sometimes don't even know they came to town. So how do we change that? And what kind of substance would you like to see in that engagement? So first, I think when you have activists who are doing really difficult work where their safety is on the line in country, I think it's good that they're getting meetings with top level officials and not just seeing desk officer. I think that in addition to going to State Department and USAID, it would be good for them to also be getting meetings with the NSC and other policymakers who don't necessarily think about human rights on a daily basis and how it links to the things they're working on because human rights and labor rights go together, human rights and, and defense go together. It touches everything that the U.S. is working on, but they're often siloed into one or two desk officers and, and that's it. I think also it would be good for the U.S. to be doing lessons learned and information sharing. These activists working around the continent sometimes face similar challenges and, and providing kind of that space here in D.C. where they can they can talk about the challenges they're facing and their own countries and how they've addressed them and what's worked and what hasn't is an opportunity that where the U.S. can be a leader for them. So using the convening power of the United States to bring human rights defenders together and then well, one, the strength in number, I think, to know each other, to know the issues and see, maybe learn best practices. So we have identified a lot of gaps. I just want to go around all three of you to see how do you mind those gaps and ideally how will you try to bridge them? 
Yeah, well, I agree with the points that Kate has made about engaging more with civil society and particularly spotlighting human rights defenders. I think that there's always a calculation that's made inside the U.S. government about time, availability, capacity, prioritization, some sense that there's a zero-sum calculation around a senior official's time. You know, the Secretary of State, National Security Advisor, the President... They're only going to spend X amount of time on a Zambia, a Tanzania, a Zimbabwe. And so how do you spend that minimal amount of time? And the the default tends to be engaging with a senior government official. I think it's interesting to think about, are there scenarios where the best use of that time is engaging a senior human rights activist or civil society representative? Or, you know, just thinking about that kind of balance of, of engagement. You know, I think there's also very often in the U.S. government a risk opportunity calculation around spotlighting human rights abuses, things like the killing of a human rights activist, where the government tends to overestimate the risk associated with the foreign government's reaction. You know, this government is obviously not going to welcome a statement criticizing their human rights record and downplay the benefit of that statement to empowering human rights activists. And as Kate said, sort of symbolically showing that the United States supports their efforts both in the very short term, you know, concretely day to day, but also in the bigger picture and longer term narrative about our engagement in these countries. And I think sometimes that calculation is a little off. I think in reality, governments do get annoyed or frustrated when the U.S. makes critical statements, but we very rarely see concrete severing of relationships or concrete um, reactions by those governments in ways that harm U.S. national interests. And, And I think the tangible opportunity of helping activists or civil society or democratic process is hard to see in real time. And so it gets undervalued a little bit. So I think just recalculating, recalibrating a little bit, some of those interactions is really important. And then I would just say the other piece is, in addition to the engagement, there's also the sort of more concrete foreign policy tools that the U.S. government has, which is often money both foreign assistance money, but also how we support, Kate referenced, investment deals, making sure that we're putting our best foot forward in terms of what kind of private sector engagement we're supporting, making sure that that's rights respecting, that the companies that are often the face of the U.S. in many countries are also engaging communities, also engaging stakeholders, getting social license to operate, and you know, strategically spending our foreign assistance dollars in ways that help to build stronger civil society, democratic institutions, and security security forces that respect human rights and all of that. And our budget requests for democracy, human rights and government have gone up. And I think the Summit for Democracy process has helped reinforce the need for those budgets to go up. But they're still relatively a a very small fraction of how we spend our foreign assistance money compared to humanitarian assistance and, and other things that are important. So we need to think about how we can continue to grow and strategically deploy our money as well as our sort of time and our and our statements. How do we bridge that gap? Wow, it's a, it's a pretty huge gap to be bridged, but there are opportunities. I think what Marty has said about recalibration in terms of U.S. engagement with what's going on on the continent is key. At the same time, the recognition that the continent does not sit in isolation on the global stage is something that you know has to be acknowledged and I think is increasingly being acknowledged by the Biden administration. And what does that mean? What does that look like? What it should look like is that, yes, there should be an emphasis on holding leaders accountable and pressure on leaders to, to hold themselves accountable. But at the same time, democracy requires strong institutions and an empowered citizenry and not just 
In fact, it doesn't require strong leaders or autocrats, right? So the emphasis should be on how citizens on our continent can be empowered to demand democracy, to demand accountability of their leaders, how institutions such as electoral management bodies, anti-corruption bodies, the judiciary can be strengthened to hold our leaders accountable. So there's all these initiatives, I think, that are coming from the U.S. government. And yes, money is being put into some of these initiatives. So there's the USAID Partnerships for Democracy, I think $55 million, if I'm not wrong, committed to that. Where is it going and who's receiving that kind of support? That is how we bridge the gaps because what we've seen, the examples we've given in Zambia and in other places where democracy has held strong has been that these institutions have been strong enough to reverse democratic regression where it's been required. In a country like Malawi, for example, where the judiciary ruled, the Supreme Court overturned election results. We saw that in Kenya. Where the institutions are strong, we see democratic progression. Where the citizens are empowered, we see democratic progression. Where the civic space is defended, we see democratic consolidation. So it's a lot to deal with, but I do think that if there is political will on the part of both the U.S. government to engage on human rights and democracy in more concrete terms beyond the rhetoric, and we have governments such as Zambia increasingly taking the lead from the African side, then we're we're likely to see some changes. Changes are needed. Kate Hickson. Yeah, I think what Marty said about recalibration is really important. And the Africa Leaders Summit was, to me, a starting point. And so what I'd love to see as Ambassador Carson takes on his role, kind of following up on this, is that he is traveling to the continent and hearing from human rights defenders and civil society and talking to them along with having meetings with government, because I think there's still an opportunity to elevate the issues that human rights defenders face and their priorities. So I hope they take that opportunity to do so. This has been very insightful as a conversation. I hope that as we go into the summit, and of course, summits only happen in a couple of days and then life goes on. As we go on with life and human defenders, human rights defenders and democracy, organization continue to push that your recommendation will be taken to heart by the powers that be and that we'll continue to see change in the region. Ladies, Marty Flax of CSIS, Kate Hickson of Amnesty International and Tiseke Kasambala of Freedom House, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long.